Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show takes guests in the barrel, behind the scenes with the people who've been there, done that, and seen the results. Revenue Builders covers best practices for scaling and growing your business while sharing the pitfalls to avoid. Great conversation, solid interviews, tangible takeaways to help you succeed. If you enjoy the content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Hello, and welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast, In the Barrel with Cap and Mac. I'm John McMahon, and I'm here with my friend and esteemed colleague, John Kaplan. Cap, how are you today? I'm doing great, brother. Doing great. Good to see you, buddy. Good to hear, buddy. Good to hear. Hey, Cap, seatbelts on, tray table in the upright and locked no position, doubt. buddy. <laughs> we got a super <laughs> special guest here today. Uh, Doug has served at the highest levels of public service, international finance, international business, nonprofit work, teaching responsibilities. He's also the author of several books on topics like foreign policy, culture, business life, theology, 19th century history. Doug was formerly senior officer with the International Investment Banking Division of Goldman Sachs. Prior to Goldman, Doug held senior positions in the White House and also in the United States Department of State. After serving at the Department of State, he was appointed by the president to become the U.S. Special Ambassador to South Africa during the time Nelson Mandela was being released from prison. Currently, he's co-founder of Park Avenue Equity Partners. It's a private equity fund making investments in mid-market companies. He's also co-founder and general partner in Elgin Capital Partners, a private equity partnership focused on domestic energy development. Now, while he continues as an active investor, Doug's main focus is on Path North it's a nonprofit he started, which is dedicated to helping business owners and CEOs redefine success. He also holds the Heinz Christian Prector Executive in residence position at Georgetown University, where he also teaches MBA students. And if you thought Doug couldn't possibly have any additional time, <laughs> he just recently authored the book titled Rethinking Success. Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. Cap, help me welcome a man that's been there, done that, and is now focused on serving his fellow man to discover balance in life and meaningful relationships, Doug Holiday. Dude, that was an unbelievable intro, buddy. Doug, <laughs> we are so excited to have you. I uh, looked at my bio this morning and thought there's nothing I could possibly do to even get close to the next intro. Uh, thank you for being with us today. We're really, really excited to dig in with you, especially to talk about your new book. So uh, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you, John. Thanks, John, John and John. Hey, Doug, so you've had an amazing and stellar career. Would you mind for our audience just giving a, an overview of your career with the audience, like how it started, how you got into international business, how you transitioned to the White House, things like that? Yeah, I mean, this is probably going to surprise you is uh, I didn't have a life plan at all. I feel like I'm more of an impact player. I kind of know my skill set and that has 
multiple applications. So I've never been qualified for anything in my life. And, but I, I have an ability, I'm pretty creative and I can figure out stuff. So for some unknown reason, I've been put in phenomenal situations at, a, at unique times when I could really um, make a difference. And I, I'm just so grateful. So, um, which shows me, you know, this whole, this whole, this quote says, fortune favors the bold. I think I've always been pretty bold and I feel like if I could be in the room, uh, I probably can add some value. And, and so that's what I've done. And I really mean that. And I tell that to my MBA students. I, I mean, one of them, one of them came to me a couple months ago and he said, uh, you know, professor, I'm really upset. I, I have two weeks on a resume that I can't account for. And I said, well, I've got about 20 years on mine that I can't account for. It's like, come on guys. It's, it's crazy. But I think life is fun when you kind of understand what makes you come alive and your passion and, and where you add value. And uh, I remember when I was being interviewed at Goldman Sachs, the head of investment banking said here, the only problem we have here is I should be working for you and instead of you for me. And I said, Jeff, I, I know what I'm good at. The last thing I want to do is run anything. I mean, I, I know my value. I'm an impact player. You know, put me in a situation. I'm going to find a way to move the needle. But I don't want to run this boring stuff all the time. So, hmm. so it, I think it's really good when you know that. And, and John, it's funny. I have a little exercise I do with my students because a lot of them say, I don't know what I'm good at or how do you find your purpose, all that. And this sounds so ridiculous, but I think it's true. I said, uh, put your life in five-year blocks, no lie, one to five, five to 10, 10 to 15, and then write down two things. What did you love doing? And what, uh, what did others say you were good at? You're going to find about seven reoccurring themes. And if you are doing those things in your life, you are going to find your bliss. You're going to find your purpose. So I think of that, there was in my kindergarten class, there was a girl named Judy Rich. She was really tall. She would line us up every day at end of recess and kind of present us to the teacher. And I'm kind of thinking, if she's happy, she's probably an accountant or an actuary or something. She just loved order and precision and all that. Nobody asked her to do that. Nobody asked her to be that. So, so you know, when you were five to 10, did you love team sports or individual? Did you like creative things? Did you play an instrument? Uh, were you analytical? I mean, it's unbelievable if we're just thoughtful about these patterns. There are life patterns that are going to keep showing up. And you, are, you and your kids are going to be happy to the extent that you can express those things. The sad thing, most of us, they get eclipsed by the money chase. Mm -hmm. And we start saying, oh, my gosh, you got to make a lot of money. I saw it at Goldman all the time. I'd have these talks like this. And guys would say, you know, Doug, someday, I love everything you're saying. Someday when I'm 55 or 60, then I'm going to pursue my dream. The problem with that scenario, you have forgotten who you are by that. Right. So this is why I teach MBAs. And I teach a course on meaning in the belly of the beast at Georgetown. And I say, I say, you know, you've got to create space in your life to think, to feel, to build practices that are going to be life practices. If you do that, when you get to 60, you'll be a 
person that thrives. If you don't do that, you're going to be another one of these people, which I say to my class the first day, how many of you would say, particularly your fathers, the light has gone out? Yeah. 65% raised their hand. And I said, you are going to be that guy or that woman. I think women, they're better on this. They're much more evolved and connect better. But I said, you're going to be that person unless you really look at your life and look at the story you're born into. Because what you've seen, you're going to do, even if it's horrific, even if you knew it created bad stuff for your family. It, you were born into it and it's familiar. But we could talk a long time about that. Yeah, let's talk about that. In your book, you do talk about the fact that you're born into a, lot, a story and you need to understand that story and how that story does affect you and affects your life, either in a positive yeah. or a negative way. But being Absolutely. aware of it is so important. Can you talk a little bit about that, Doug? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Uh, I think it's to tell a story, it really puts a, a point on it. So Peter Buffett's a friend of mine, Warren Buffett's son. So Peter's telling me, so Peter says this, we're all born in someone else's story. And when he said that, huh? So he said, Doug, let me tell you my story. He said, here I am a sophomore at Stanford. The only reason I'm at Stanford is because of my last name. And he said, then my father famously announced that he wasn't going to leave the three of us anything. And that kind of sucked. And then he said, <laughs> I'm there, you know, I'm doing finance and economics. I don't like it. It's not who I am. Then my mother calls a couple of months later and said, Peter, your grandfather died and left you some money. He said, how much? 92000 That day, Peter packed his car in Palo Alto, left Stanford and drove to L.A. to pursue his story, what he wanted his story to be, which was a musician. Mm. And Peter, Peter then um, did well in this, actually did part of the score for dances with wolves with one an emmy <clears throat> and uh so i was i was telling him at one time one of our later conversations i said peter you know in in faith traditions jewish muslim christian there's something called the blessing where the an adult or the elders say to you you know john you have what it takes it it's almost launches you as a male i said did your dad ever do that and he thinks for a minute, he says, you know, it's interesting. He said uh, about five years ago, I was doing a show in o Omaha. My father had never been to one of my shows. I look up in the back and there's my dad and Charlie Munger. And they come down and, and Warren Buffett puts his hand on Peter's shoulder and says, Peter, we've both been successful in our own ways. I said, Peter, you got the blessing. Yeah. So I would say to us on this call, many of us never got the blessing, never, a, a lot of us, part of why we keep striving and working and accumulating is because we're trying to, we're trying to please some adult figure you can't please, some, somebody that will never tell you you're enough. And I'd say to you now, you've got to pause and say, why the hell am I doing this? And, and look at yourself pause when you're lost in the woods step one is <laughs> acknowledge your loss say this is not working for me and the problem is if if you don't understand this you're going to replicate this with your own kids the story you have seen i say to my mba students how many of you grew up in raging families there was a lot of anger and craziness 60 percent raised their hand 
I said, guess what? That's going to be your family unless you take a hard look at that and make decisions to break those patterns. So, so this is not uh, this is not theoretical stuff. This determines your life. And if you doubt me on um, this notion of how these patterns that we've observed and lived into have affected us, you look at children who have been molested when they were young. You would think the last thing any of them would ever do with their own children would be to molest them. Sadly, a large percentage do. Why? because it's familiar, even though it was horrific, it was the way they connected with the most important caregivers in their life. So this is not theoretical. You've got to really get your head around this kind of stuff. Yeah. You talk about how some of these, some people, you know, had a career and they're lonely at the top. I was playing golf with a guy and I asked him about his dad and he said, yeah, you know, my dad was CEO of a company, you know, worked as, you know, nonstop. That's all he knew his whole life. And he had tons of energy and he went, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But, you know, John, you know what happened? My dad didn't retire from work. When he retired, he retired from life. He sat on the couch and less than one year later, he was dead. He had no hobbies, no friends, nothing. All he did was just work his entire life. He had no balance in that life, no meaningful relationships, as you talk about in your book. Wow, that that's a poignant uh, story. I mean, there's there's so many stories like that. There was an Inc. study a few years ago of three thousand CEOs. Of the three thousand, fifty percent self-reported that they're lonely and disconnected. These are these are middle market and bigger companies. Of those uh, three thousand, uh, you know, fifty percent self-reported they were disconnected, but sixty-one percent of the fifty percent said they're making bad decisions as a leader because they have nobody in the world they can trust. Hmm. Why is that, Doug? Why is it that so many leaders get lonely at the top and so many leaders, and sometimes it's not even the top, they get lonely and then they don't trust anybody. So they do make bad decisions. Why is that? Well, I think you you said it well, John. They they don't trust anybody. And I mean, this is true. I think what happens, the unintended consequences of success can be lonely and disconnection. So you can be the principal of a middle school or sheriff of a, of a police force in a small town. And the same phenomenon is true there. You know, I don't have anybody in my life to talk to or trust and, and that kind of thing. Particularly with men, we're not taught. We don't have a language of the heart. So I, I say to men, you know, when you're out sometime and maybe you're walking or running in the morning and you see three women, typically they're, talking, if you eavesdrop on their conversation, often they're talking about things that really matter. Yeah. Men, by contrast, you know, I go off to play golf with Fred. Fred's wife died two months ago. So I'm playing golf. I come home and I said, she says, well, how, how's Fred doing? I said, fine. We had a good golf game. No, I mean, how's he doing since his wife died? Oh, it just didn't come up. Yeah. That is more true than not. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. And so I, what I say to people in our circle and path north and others that, you know, we need to try to create a safe way that we can explore the most important things that many of us never have a chance to explore. So in my class, I, I have 
I, fr I frame it. It's an MBA class on meaning. And I have 10 questions you have to ask to have a life of thriving. And then I bring in rock star CEOs. You know, I have the chairman of Johnson Johnson or JP Morgan Chase or some big hedge fund guy. And I know their story that illustrates them on risk, on failure, on relationship. And I tell you, it's fantastic. But, you know, I didn't realize the most important part of that was for those CEOs. They're articulating things that they've never explored. And those students are asking them really probing questions. It's unbelievable. Really. Yeah, you, Johnny. Talk, you talk about in the, your book to define success for people should be in human personal terms, not in individual personal monetary gains and to concentrate on the human bonds that are forged. So in some ways you talk about what you call the double bottom line, not only doing well and accumulating, but doing good and giving back yeah. and forging human bonds. That perfectly said, John. And, and uh, you know, it's, it, it's sad because we've got, it's a muscle we have to practice. And uh, I mean, the data is really interesting. So Vivek Murthy, who is the uh, Surgeon General, uh, before the pandemic, he identified as the greatest health crisis in America, not smoking, not obesity, but loneliness. Mm. I mean, who would have done that when uh, when Theresa May was uh, prime minister of England? She appointed a cabinet level position, a minister of loneliness. It's so wow. epidemic in that country. <laughs> wow. So there, there's a great story. Uh, some of you could look this up in England. They're called chat benches. So there was an elderly woman uh, that kept giving money to this young man. She didn't know he would call her on the phone and give her the sob story. She kept giving her money. And eventually it was a meaningful amount. It was 35,000 pounds she had given him. So the cops broke this, went to her and said, did you have any inkling he was taking advantage of you? She said, oh, yeah, of course I did. Well, why did you keep doing it? She said this. If I didn't talk to him, I I wouldn't talk to anybody all day. Wow. Yeah. So this cop started in the park. In fact, I saw one recently when I was in London, the community, this thing called a chat bench. It's a bench that said, if you want to talk, sit here. And then people just come and they sit and they, uh, they can talk. <laughs> Amazing. Hey, Doug, um, in... Putting all these, first of all, your unbelievable background created all these experiences and all these relationships. And I find that the most successful people on the planet, in my opinion, are the ones who've made sense of their own stories. And mm -hmm. so when I look at the book that you, um, that you put together, again, it's called Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. You really kind of start with helping people identify like their definition of success. I think the first tenet, if you will, the first practice, if you will, is the illusions of success. And we're talking about isolation and loneliness. And you talk a little bit about, you know, and it sounds kind of biblical to me, like people are made kind of perfect in their brokenness. Um, and I, it's interesting throughout your book, there's, I, I see references to Solomon and, 
and maybe on another <laughs> podcast we can go deep on that. I'd love to. I'd love to go there with you. But um, it's it really lends itself in the beginning here in the illusions of success to this this concept of authentic leadership, which I think is a really good topic for our <clears throat> listeners right now because it's getting more and more rare. I so John, could you I talk about your experience with authentic leadership? Yeah, here here's the problem. Having been in Washington, so the, the White House, State Department, all these things, you see all these fake apologies when people get caught. If I did anything wrong, you know, it's never, it's yes. always this dancing around it. Here's what I have found. People are drawn to authenticity. They don't want you to be perfect, but authenticity is enough. So here's an example. You know, you kind of say, um, you know, this thing of, being authentic and really being who you are. You know, there's that whole, all that body of research done on imposter syndrome. Most of us don't feel like, feel like we're not as smart or as capable or as rich or talented as everybody thinks we are. So, so I say that our point of identity with people is not our strength. It's not how rich you are, how famous you are, all these accolades. It is your brokenness. So I said this to my MBA class three years ago. And now imagine this. There's a young man on the front row. I said this. There's two things I say to start the class. That was one. So I said, this is going to be real, guys. We're not playing games here. We're going to get down and dirty. This guy says, Professor, I've been trying to get in this class. And I finally got in there because it's popular, not because of me, but because of the content. But he says, um, I really want to be real. And he said, I've had a debilitating stutter my whole life, which made me live in the shadows. I never had any friends, but I was very strong academically. And he said, a few years ago, here I was in an Ivy League school, sophomore. I decided I was going to take my life. He's telling us this the first five minutes. But wow. before I take my life, I'm going to go out and talk to some people and try to speak to them. And I'm not going to be able to put I'm going to be a laughing stock because I can't put five words together. I'm going to do that. So he said, I went out there and two things happened. One, the more I talked, the more my stutter seemed not to be as pronounced. And the second, people started saying, wow, you think you have problems? I have this. So he started connecting in an entirely different way, an authentic way. So our class heard this. And so I said to them, me being the smart ass that I am, I said, okay, folks, so you're a class of winners. Everybody in here is so gifted and talented. But, you know, Clark has told us something about himself, and probably a lot of you don't want to be in a class with somebody like Clark. And so I'm going to take a break. You can go to the register and get out of this class. How many of you want to transfer? Obviously, no one raised their hand. How many of you feel safer in your own brokenness because of what Clark did. Everybody raise their hand. I said, if you know nothing else than what you just learned this morning, you will have a rich life. Because every other narrative is, I don't belong in the room because I'm not this enough. I'm not that enough. And that's a fool's errand to do it. I don't belong in any room. I don't. I started this group with John Whitehead, the legendary chairman of Goldman Sachs. We have a small group. He died a few years ago, but we, the group continues up the Lynx Club, the Upper East Side in New York. And we meet once a month and everybody in that group, and these are the biggest leaders in America, 
have said to me privately, I, you know, I don't think I'm rich enough to be in here. I'm not famous. And, and I say to them the same thing. I say, I'm the only one that shouldn't be in here. But you guys, every one of them is comparing themselves because that's the world they've been in. And so, so I think that there was a great story about a guy, one of my best friends is Steve Case, who started AOL. Yeah. And one of the companies he bought, I will not mention the guy, but, but uh, I, it's either Forbes or Fortune. Every year would interview this guy about how much money would make you feel secure and good about yourself. First, it was 10 million. This went on for 25 years, 10 million. Then it was 50. Then it was 100. Then it was 500 million. Then it was a billion. Then it was 2 billion. Then it was 4 billion. Then it was 7 billion. Then at one point, he was the third wealthiest person in America. And the guy said, Surely you feel good about yourself now and that you belong. You're amazing. Look at this. Your net worth is incredible. What would you say? And he said, For one day, I'd like to be richer than Bill Gates, but that'll never happen. Wow. You almost wow. feel sorry for him, right? <laughs> you do, because yeah, the average, the data, the data says, I read this, and they have, they've got all kinds of data on this. It's like the average human being, it's $70,000 a year, which is yeah. unfathomable probably to our audience that, that we're talking to. And they've statistically correlated it that says after step, because it's your basic needs have yeah. been met. The yeah. exponential it, it drastically goes down on your and I know yeah. you don't you don't call it you call it meaningful versus happiness. We'll get into that a little bit more. This study was on happiness. Did the money make them any happier? And it stopped yeah. at seventy grand, Johnny. Seventy grand. I mean, I that yeah. that's amazing, isn't it? I, I yes. uh, I played golf with a guy that um, whose company hey, you got taken gotta work, over. John, you've got to work more. It looks like you just play golf all the time. Doug, thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. I've and I'm still to terrible. To connect with that. And I'm still he terrible, told, John, Doug. He told me to tell you that. Cap was the one. Blame it on me. <laughs> yeah, but Doug, I'm showing my brokenness. I'm still terrible. I'm still terrible. <laughs> And therefore, he's, no, attracting so what me. Was, he's attracting was me to his brokenness because I'm terrible at golf, too. And we golf together all the time. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's a humbling sport. Oh, no. So I, I this guy's company had just been taken over and I'm in the cart with them. Make a long story short, in between each hole, he tells me about new condos that he bought, new motorcycles that he bought, new cars that he bought, you know, and on and on and on. And then when I got home. My wife had asked me, you know, how is, you know, he doing? And I said, he sounds so unhappy. Yeah. And I just thought because each time he's buying a car and then a house and a motorcycle and another car and a condo, he's doing yeah. these, buying these material things that have like a giant rush. But a week later, you still haven't yeah. fulfilled the need internally. And he was, he really sounded Absolutely. unhappy. No, absolutely. And, uh, you know, David Brooks has a great piece that you guys ought to look at if you hadn't seen it. He is a New York Times columnist, friend of mine. He contrasts uh, eulogy virtues with resume virtues. I love yeah. that. And yeah, it's just a, it's a great conversation to have around the family table around that about what are we going to really value in our life and our family? But, um, but, you know, Cap mentioned something I, I really want to pick up on because I think it's really important, um, the difference between happiness and meaning. Yeah. Happiness is correlated with externalities. You know, I have a girlfriend. 
My son got into good college. I did this. I did that. And that that comes and goes. Sometimes we're happy about these things. Sometimes we're not. But meaning is what you want to go for. Meaning you can be in the most God-awful situations and still find meaning. And if you doubt me on that, there's a great book written by Man Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Classic. Yeah. yeah, classic book. Amazing. Uh, you know, psychotherapist. And he was in the Nazi death camps. And he observed the people that survived were not the physically robust, but those who had purpose beyond that. Someday I'm going to play my violin. I'm going to meet my grandchildren. They had a purpose beyond that circumstance and all. So, so I think for all of us, we got to figure out what is it? Because this is the other thing I feel really strongly. It's about trouble. Trouble is important to look at because you're either in trouble, you're coming out of trouble, or you're going in trouble. Trouble <laughs> is everywhere. Yes. So, it's not to be afraid of, but if you don't understand that, and the problem is with high achieving people, they did everything right. They went to the right schools. They got the right grades. They did the right thing. They went with Goldman Sachs. They did this and that. So everything is like, I did it the right way. And then all of a sudden, my son took his life. All of a sudden, I have cancer. All of a sudden, I'm bankrupt. All of a sudden, I'm getting sued. I mean, this stuff shows up. And I said, you have to develop a philosophy of trouble because if you don't have one, it's going to sidetrack you and it's going to blow you out of the water in big time ways. So to, to spend time, really understand what's your worldview? How do you understand trouble? Because it's all going to happen. I mean, it's just a matter of time. Some way, someday we're all going to be diminished and you got to figure out, does life still have meaning? when I'm in a different state, when I don't have the strength, the power I used to have. I really like this topic, John and Doug, because I don't think people really, you know, there's all kinds of phrases out there like embrace the suck or what have you, but there's, there's huge meaning in that because like the data that I've studied and some things that I've personally experienced in my life is they, the, there's all kinds of data about post-traumatic growth. And, but it's yeah. just hard to remember when you're in the suck no, or you're, you're in the in trauma it. or you're in the decline yeah. that God's basically designed us with what, what they call a psychological immune system, which basically means that the next time the suck comes or the next time the trouble comes, we actually have the equivalent of psychological antibodies. So that's where resilience yeah. comes yeah. from. So I yeah. really, yeah. really love your philosophy around that. It's, it's powerful. And people just need to hear that. Like wherever you are, wherever you are in your life, when the trouble comes or the crisis comes, it's an opportunity. And it seems kind of cliche, but it's an yeah. opportunity for tremendous growth. Yeah. Well, Doug talked about that when we opened the session, he said, most of the positions I went into, I was rarely qualified. Right. Yeah. And I, I felt I, the I, same way true. in a lot of positions I went into, but then I had, and maybe Doug, you experienced the same thing. I had this like giant fear of failure that really propelled me to do <laughs> anything I could to be successful. So sometimes like you were referring to earlier on, our life isn't going to be perfect. And it's okay to go ahead and take a chance in life. Because yeah. if you, you will jump into that, you will find a way to succeed. And you will, in most cases, have this giant fear of failure, which really does propel you to, to success. Yeah. But that's, why do we, but why do we, the older we get, Doug, uh, parlaying onto what John says, 
why do we take less risk? So that's one of the premises in your book, which is, you know, invite risk into your life. But the yeah. why the yeah. older we get, are we less likely to do that? Why? What, what is yeah. that? Well, to begin with, it's, it's almost like when you're playing a game, like you would never go on a basketball court and say, the purpose of playing this game is to not get hurt. Well, you're probably going to get hurt if yeah. that's what you're doing. Right. Yeah. And the problem is, as people get older, you realize their world gets narrower because they're, they're afraid. Um, and they, when you're afraid, you tend to, to crawl inside yourself and isolate yourself. So I'm not saying risk will look the same that it did when you were 25, but it should have many, many characteristics where you're, you know, if you've never been to an opera, maybe you say, I'm going to go to an opera. (laughs) If you've never talked to a homeless guy, maybe for the first time you talk to him, what's your story? I mean, there are little ways you could do this and it it changes your life. You know, I I was, I was flying to uh, London recently. I was in Dallas and <clears throat> I was walking and there was a woman from Sudan with a hijab on and just slits for her eyes. And she was really struggling, had a big suitcase, two tiny children. She was struggling with them all. And I was struggling in my mind because I'd been around a lot of my Muslim friends and all. But I also knew she was the most rigorous form of, of you know, the Muslim faith is in Sudan. And I didn't want to put her in an awkward place because I, I wanted to take her suitcase to her to her gate because she was struggling. But I thought I'd go as far as she would allow me. And at first she was uncomfortable. And I said, can I just take the suitcase? And then she was struggling with the two kids. So I held the hand of the little boy as we went down the elevator. I could tell she felt more and more comfortable and it wasn't like we were laughing and joking. It was just that she wasn't freaking out. And we got down and then I, uh, you know, we got on the tram, went to her gate and I, I took the suitcase over to her gate and I could see there's a lot of women, very, very observant dressed like her. And I, I, I was very formal and I said, thank you for allowing me to be a little bit useful and then walked away. And I thought, you know, did that change my life? No. But did it give me a, did it force me to think differently for 10 minutes? Yes. And I just think these miracles are every place waiting for us to to just unwrap them. I mean, they're every place. It's it just, you know, I had, I told the story in the book. I had this guy, I'd go up to Portland and I'd see this same homeless guy in front of Rite Aid every time I was up there. And I said, oh my gosh, I don't want to talk to this guy. And I struggled. And I said, finally, I'm going to ask him this story. So I asked the guy his story and he said, well, I was a seasonal worker. I'd go around to different parts of the West Coast and Mexico and I would, I would pick fruit. And then I hurt my back. The last thing I want to do is be out here begging, but I can't work. I don't have health insurance. So when you know somebody's story, everything changes. Yeah. Everything changes. Yeah. And that's what's so powerful about probing people's stories. I, I, you know, I, there's this family I'm really close to, and the son was a great athlete, 
Heisman Trophy winner, actually. And his father and I did not get along. I mean, it was kind of oil and water. I mean, I'm a free spirit. And this guy was definitely rigid in the box. So I was going to a game. And I came in the night before. Next morning, I go to breakfast. And no one's in the hotel but him. And that that in the breakfast room, I said, oh, my gosh, he doesn't want to sit with me. And I certainly don't want to sit with him. <laughs> so I'm there. And then I said to him, I said, Bill, uh, can I sit with you? He said, yeah. And I said, Bill, I've, I've been always curious about your story. So he tells me this. And in five minutes, my whole view of him shifted. Mm. He said, well, Doug, I grew up out in the Midwest. Uh, and I found out a secret in our family, not till I was 39. But the secret was my father in this small town had another wife and family. Mm. And unbelievable. So I asked him, I said, so, Bill, how did this affect you? And here's where it was like a light went off. He said, all I want in my life now is black and white and clarity because I knew my whole life something is freaking wrong. Mm. Yeah. So I get him now and I went from resentment of his rigidity to compassion. I get him now. I get him. So yeah. once we bother to know somebody's story, life changes. And a lot of us haven't done that with our spouse. We haven't done that with people that we're close to, but it changes us. Yeah. Everybody is what they're like because of the sum total of all the craziness and goodness that they've experienced in life. Yeah. But so once that you saying, understand that, it's powerful. There's that saying that, you know, my dad used to tell me, I remember coming home one day and I was telling him about this kid that actually, I guess it was kind of borderline bullying if I'm being truthful. Um, and, and I was horrified about the story of this kid that I was not very open with or <clears throat> my father said to me, he said, Hey, John, he said, <clears throat> know this. And it's one of the greatest things he ever taught me. He said, everybody has a story. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a story and the most successful people in life will be the ones who understand and let people tell their stories. And I've never forgotten it. I, I was probably less than 10 years old and me and that kid today are very good friends. Oh, very that's good friends. Fantastic. Well, yeah. you know, you talk about how do you translate that into the workplace? I think one way you can do it is like if somebody has a, a group of 10 people that they're responsible for, you do something as simple as this every week when you start your staff meeting, say, Today we're going to hear from John. He's just going to tell us how he grew up, what, what he thinks affected his life. Love that. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, I understand John in a different way. Oh, my gosh. I didn't know you had an autistic son. I didn't know this. I did that. I, I'm on the board of a big REIT down in Orlando. And I was I, I was there and I was sitting next to this woman who's a lawyer. And I said, you know, I've never asked you about your story. And uh, she she has two severely disabled kids, too. And it's like massively disabled. And I thought, wow, I now, I now have a different view of how she has to survive every day. And this problem isn't going away. And, but once you know that, boy, do I have a different, it's like Marcel Proust said, the key is 
not just to see, but to see with new eyes. Knowing the story enables you to see with a fresh set of eyes things that have been, you know, standing and right in front of you. Yeah. And right on that, Doug, earlier, seeing with a fresh set of eyes, earlier you touched on the pandemic. And, you know, this isn't just business people now. The pandemic really forced a lot of people to look within themselves and in many cases reevaluate where they were in their lives. So people moved, they changed jobs, they changed careers, discovered new sports, new hobbies, and reevaluated what was meaningful in their life. So in some ways it was a double-edged sword, but why did it take a pandemic to force so many people to discover what's meaningful? What do you, what do you well, it's kind of like, yeah, this one Oxford scholar by the name of C.S. Lewis, you know, many of us don't know what a megaphone anymore is, but in the 30s and 40s, this is how they would, before they had amplification, they would yell into this cone-like thing and it would amplify their voice. C.S. Lewis, who's a, a Oxford scholar, he said this, pain is God's megaphone. You know, pain you you hear it like when I'm in pain, I got plenty of time to pray. When I'm in pain, I have plenty of time to think about my life. And and so pain is a good thing because it makes you forces you to recalibrate what's really important. Mm. And it cuts through all the BS. And then you have to say, wow, who who really am I? Because we can get carried away with ourselves. I remember a guy I invested with in New York said to me one time, I remember feeling like, wow, be careful. He said, I'm financially bulletproof. Mm. And I said, wow. (laughs) Wonder if he's been in the current before 2008 or after. Yeah. Or how about the current market? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just, it's it's amazing when you think of it. And, uh, you know, there's nothing secure. And that's the thing. People keep thinking, I mean, I live in these places. I'm in McLean, Virginia. I mean, somebody's building a house. Then, right? It must be. I, I, well, we just were at a dinner party. This guy's house is 47,000 square feet. They have no children. It's a couple. In Potomac. And I'm thinking, wow, what do you do with that? Where is the soulish connection? Where do you, where do you find people? And, and Where do you find your spouse? Behind? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's why it's 47,000. Hey, Doug, if we switch really gears when... real quick, can yeah, you switch yeah. gears? So it, you went from the business world to the White House, world diplomacy, you know, back into, um, you know, private equity. And you saw so many different leaders. Were there yeah. some common traits that you noticed about the different or the greatest leaders that you met? Or were there certain traits that yeah. you saw from certain leaders that you thought, ah, I need to do, I need to incorporate that in my life? Is there anything along those lines from your from your past? Yeah. I think um, the best leaders have a humility, number one. You know, the great and the, the Greeks nailed it. They said hubris is the greatest sin. When you think you're God's gift to the world, watch it. But I think real leaders have a humility and they're really grounded. I think um, on the other side, there so many of them are shocked that they've been as successful as they are. They, they say, 
I'm not smart enough or good enough, but somehow here I am, CEO of a Fortune 100 company. I, I don't know how this happened. So, so they feel like luck and fortune really were good to them. I think um, they also, they also, um, you know, the, the best really take time to connect with friends, a couple friends in their life. And, you know, I have a friend, some of you might've heard me, Ray Chambers, uh, and Ray invented the leverage buyout, started West Ray Capital in the seventies and eighties. I mean, he's, he's a rock star on many levels, but, but Ray is a good friend. And, but Ray is really interesting. He decided he had enough at about 44. I mean, he was a billionaire, but had enough. But I remember he came up to Goldman Sachs and we were on the 22nd floor. So there was this partner there. And I said, Mark, come here a second. I said, do you know Ray Chambers? And he said, oh, of course I know who he is. And I said, Mark, why don't you do something interesting with your life? We're trying to develop this mentoring points of light thing. And, you know, you could be great to help us. And he said, well, if I had as much money as Mr. Chambers, I would do that. And then Ray looked at him and said, Mark, how much is enough? And you could see his brain kind of calculating. He said, and then he said, how did you know it was enough? He said, when I realized the price of making more was doing bad things to my soul, I decided it was time to leave wow. and, and, and pivot and do other things. Uh, you know, I, I'd recommend if you haven't ever read this, there's a letter that uh, Andrew Carnegie wrote himself in 1888 at the St. Nicholas Hotel in, in New York. It's an f- amazing letter. He was, he was 33 years old. And he said, you know, I, 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 I have passive income. This is 1888. I have passive income of 50000 a year. And he said, I'm going to work three more years. While I'm working, I'm going to have really intelligent people speak into my life teach me things I never learned growing up. And then he said, uh, he said, money is the, can just be so corrosive and make you into something that's an ugly creature. And then he said, after three more years, I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to move to Oxford (coughs) and put myself under the care of some of the smartest people in the world. And then I'm going to buy a controlling interest in a newspaper or something. Sounds like some of these guys today. But um, so the question inevitably becomes, here's a very self-aware guy at 33, Andrew Carnegie. But did he do it? And the answer is no. He started making so much money that he couldn't give it away fast enough. So he set set up the Carnegie Foundation, one of the first public charities. I think it was the first. And, but, you know, uh, but he always resented it. When he went back to Edinburgh, where he was uneducated, was part of the American dream, came over. He took, he took his mother over and they had a gold carriage made and went down uh, the main drag of, of Dublin. And just in his way of saying, see, see what this note less privileged person could do with his life, you know, but it's interesting, even though he had all this stuff, you know, did it make him define meaning? I don't know the answer, but he was, he was moving around the right questions at 33. Yeah. Hey Doug, on, you founded Path North, 
You know, yeah. again, that's a nonprofit that you started dedicated to helping business owners and CEOs redefine success. What yeah. was the trigger in your career? What did you see in your life or other fr- or your friends' lives that said, this is something that I feel I got to do? What, what was it? Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because my whole life, I've had the privilege of being trusted by people that I work with, whether it's Jim Baker at the White House or Bob Rubin at Goldman or whatever it was, to, to be in these amazing privileged relationships. And um, so, so after the financial crisis of 2008, <clears throat> I kind of felt there's so many of my friends that are really feeling lost. And they want to move someplace. They're trying to tired of being vilified as a capitalist. The kids are getting yelled at, all kind of craziness. And I said, we've got to create a community of people where we can have these really important conversations that nobody's having. What, what is the meaning of life? How much is enough? How do you raise children of privilege? All this kind of thing. <clears throat> so I ran it by some friends, Steve Case, the Heisingas down in Florida. Uh, ben DuPont, uh, John Tyson, a bunch of people. And we started. And we started having experiences. Uh, we'd have salons. We've had 35 of them in different cities where I'll bring somebody interesting in and interview them. But we'll get people talking on a level that they've never talked a lot of time. We have trips, international and domestic. But it's all toward really people getting an idea or connecting with somebody or recalibrating their life because of some experience. So we don't just take trips. We take trips that'll change you. You know, our first international trip was on the Orient Express. A lot of people can do that, but we did it differently. We called it the magical mystery tour. We took magicians with us and they were amazing. And along the way, we pick up European magicians and all this, but what was interesting, every night around the table, we talked about two things, two questions in the magic motif. What are the illusions you had about life? In other words, I thought my son would do what I was going to do. Whatever it is, what are the illusions you had? And what are the mysteries you're trying, still trying to figure out? And I want to tell you, they went deep. It was crazy. It was amazing because it probably for you, it wasn't about destinations. No, it was no. about experiences. Exactly. And that's and, a big part of what you write about. It's uh it is yeah. not the it's kind of not the end, it's the it's the being. Yeah, yeah. That that great poem Ithaca is really powerful because it talks about, you know, we all have this metaphorical destination in yeah. mind. It, it's Ithaca, which is a, a, a financial number or accomplishments or whatever. And it's an illusion in the poem Ithaca. He says, you know, go, the process of, of being on the journey so that when you get there, finally to Ithaca, you're old, but wise in the experiences you brought, you brought to Ithaca, but Ithaca won't make you. You've already been made. Mm. <laughs> That's powerful. Really. Powerful. Very, yeah. very. So Johnny, we're talking about, um, we are talking to Doug holiday. We are talking about some tremendous life experiences that he's had that have kind of culminated in this awesome book. Uh, Anybody listening, it's a must read. It doesn't matter how old you are. 
I personally think the younger, the better. If I could learn, if I could talk to my 25-year-old self. Johnny, do you remember just a couple of weeks ago, I told you that I missed that 18-year-old with the duffel bag myself on a (laughs) one-way ticket to Boise, Idaho? Johnny and I just had this conversation two weeks ago. Um, But there's this, uh, this book has culminated. It's called Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. Johnny, um, I was going to do a, um, a recap here, uh, yeah, but you tell me whether it. you're ready to pivot. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's just do a quick recap here. We started off with kind of a conversation around um, your basic premise was fortune favors the bold. And it's one of actually, it's kind of related to one of your tenants about, you know, making sure that you uh, always have the ability to continue to look at risk in your life. I'm not saying how much or how little, but if you don't have any in your life, it's not a, it's not a very meaningful life. Um, I love what you said. You, you were very clear in the beginning when you said, I know what I'm good at and mm-hmm. you're comfortable with what you're good at. I think that's incredibly good advice. Um, I think people that are good at things and that gives them energy. Those are the people that I have found that are the most successful people in this world is they wake up in the morning and think they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Um, you talked about an exercise that you do with your MBA students, life in five-year blocks. Uh, what did you love doing? Um, and what did people say that you were good at? So what did you love doing? And what did people say that you were good at? And then analyzing the huge percentage of people that don't do it anymore and really kind of sitting with that. And But all of you said that these things that we're good at they, or that we were passionate about, they get eclipsed by the money chase, which I thought was very, very powerful. And then we got into um, a great conversation. You called it the blessing. And most people are, don't, aren't fortunate to get that blessing from people that validate us in our lives. I Luckily, I was. Uh, I did get that from my parents and I feel very, very fortunate and grateful. Mm. Uh, but even if you didn't get it, um, you encourage us to basically create your own blessing by understanding the meaning of your own yeah. story. Our point of identity uh, is not our strength. It's our brokenness. Our point of identity is not our strength. It's our brokenness. And connecting through our challenges is more powerful and authentic than our strengths is what you've learned through your experiences Mm -hmm. and what the data tells us. You hit us home with a deep one where you said eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. That was very, very powerful. Um, Happiness versus meaning we talked about. Loved how you talked about trouble uh, trouble or crisis is related to meaning and purpose. So, um, you know, don't fret. Uh, There's wonderful experiences with post-traumatic growth is what the data tells us. So it's an opportunity to grow and not being cliche, like hang in there, you know, you can get through the suck there. The data says that there's an opportunity for tremendous growth out of the suck. Everybody has a story. Invest in letting the other person tell their story, Not, uh, not just to see, but to see with new eyes. So don't listen to that story just to hear it but to hear it with new eyes. Johnny asked you about leadership traits. You talked about humility and authenticity and how most great leaders have this 
you know, imposter feeling or they feel unworthy or you summed it up really well that said they feel lucky, they feel grateful. And they're also great relationship builders. And the one of the most powerful things that I heard you say, which I'm, I'm going to write a lot of these down. I did write them down. I'm going to keep them on pieces of paper. Wow, How much is it. enough? How many yeah. topic of conversations I have at least once a week where I either ask somebody or somebody asked me, how much is enough? And you gave the quote that said, when the price of making more begins to do bad things to my soul. Dude, that was deep. That was deep. <laughs> wow. That was deep. I'm keeping that one written down. <laughs> what I miss, Johnny Mac. Just at the end, you know, when he talked about being on the magical mystery tour, those two questions, you know, what illusions did you have of the past and what mysteries have you still not figured out yeah. that you want to figure out? Those are <laughs> those two questions will make, make you think also. Oh, my. So, They'll make yeah. you think. And one thing, one thing I didn't say that I'd love to just, if I can mention it real quick, is on forgiveness. I think yes. most of us, um, you know, not forgiving somebody that's harmed you, it's like me taking poison and expecting you to die. It's stupid and it doesn't work. And so we need to really do business with that thing and say, where has there been somebody that's harmed us? I mean, we all say, oh, if, if John came up to me and said, Doug, I just want to ask you forgiveness. I know I talked behind your back and that was terrible. Would you forget? Of course I'd forgive that's never going to happen. So what you have to do is say, how do I live when I know I've been harmed? Somebody did it purposefully. Uh, how do I live? And I'd say, you're, you're not doing this for their sake. You're doing it for your sake. Forgive. Yeah. Let it go. Confucius, yeah. I book. think you, I heard you say, Johnny, uh, Confucius says, seek revenge and you should dig two graves, one for yourself. Yeah. That's yeah. really Absolute. powerful. Isn't right. that really a, it's, it's, yes. Yeah. It really is. Well, in your book, um, you stress the importance of two, actually two things, forgiving and serving versus resentment and accumulation. Yeah. 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 I, I picked that yeah. up from your book. It was really, that was, that really struck me. So. Well, while you we're know, giving the list, Johnny, yeah, there's yeah. only one more we haven't talked about, which was Doug, it was gratitude. So, I know it's a yeah. big part of your mantra. And can you just kind of yeah, bring yeah. us home on the topic of gratitude yeah, and why it's and so important? I, I want to show I want to show you something real quick. You know, it's funny how neuroscience has now validated how gratitude literally changes our brain. Yeah. So I've been doing this for some time now. I don't know if you read this. This is a, a, a piece of graph paper. Yes. Yeah. So every day I, I shoot for maybe four days a week, I'll write down three or four little things that I'm grateful for. They could be little things. They might be a dark roast cup of coffee, the sun shining. You know, I got a call from my son to tell me about his Costa Rica thing. Write yeah. these down. It'll end up at the end of the year, it'll be both sides, probably about 2000 little bursts of gratitude. I then laminate it. <laughs> I yes. know this is really weird. But it reminds me of gratitude. And so I say to people, you don't have to write down what wakes you up at 3 a.m. and sucks in your life. You, you, you got that. That is always <laughs> with you. But you have to create space through that jungle 
to focus on what are the what are those good things that are happening to you? What are those blessings that are every place? And that changes your whole outlook if you do that. Yeah. Doug, the neuroscience, I'm a big fan of the neuroscience behind this. And this is what I learned last year when studying it, is that they now have the ability to put electrodes on your brain. And they have found that by introducing gratitude, and this is amazing how God designed us this way, it is the only emotion that the human brain cannot share space with any other emotion. So wow. the minute you introduce gratitude, depression, anxiety, anger, they disappear because it cannot share the same space. Wow. However, depression, awesome. anxiety, oh, uh, anger, they can all share that, space John. in that, your brain. Dude, it's, oh. it is, it's amazing. It's amazing. That is really great. And it is such a wonderful you know, so if I were to say to people, how do you get started? Because a lot of us don't know how to start. I would say, one, create space in your life every day. Like yeah. it might just be five minutes or seven minutes, but pause. I have classical music going on here. Sometime I'll have Gregorian chant. Just reset. If you don't reset, you're going to keep doing the same old, same old, same. So you reset, you breathe, and then you write down these things you're grateful for. Then you might have something that's high-minded. I read this fascinating monk named Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan monk. He's so insightful. I'll read just a half-page thing he does every day. <clears throat> and then I'll write down, you know, things that I'm, people I'm concerned about, things that I'm, you know, that are on my mind. And that's how I reset every day. Will you come and visit me and my family at Thanksgiving I want you to just sit around a campfire and tell oh all the God. stories you got, dude. I want, no, I want that I experience. You're amazing. No, I'm, I, I'm just, you know, it's just weird. Um, you know, somebody asked me one time, when was the first time you remember a leader trusting you? Do you want to hear this story? Cause it's kind of weird. Sure. I was 18. Yes. yes. So I was, I was at Chapel Hill. I was 18. So I'm, I'm, uh, I had this youth group in Durham and I, I, it, it was very successful. Hundreds of kids would come to this. So I got a call one day from this woman in Raleigh, North Carolina. And she told me who she was. And she says, you know, my husband's the congressman from this area. And uh, she said, my niece has gotten involved with your program. And I don't know what you did, but her life has changed. She's on a dip. She's got a path. She knows what she's doing. And I said, well, despite, despite me, she found you know, a path. Then this woman says to me, uh, there's a very powerful guy in Raleigh. He's the wealthiest guy in the state. And he is really, really struggling. Would you spend some time with him? So this guy's about and you're 18. I'm 18. So this guy would drive over to Chapel Hill every day. I mean, every Thursday. And we'd sit there in this, his long um, Mercedes, you know, with the sticker on the right, that has the sign of the Mercedes written out. And I, I'm, I'm like everything. I'm telling this guy every cliche I've ever read anything. And I'm, I'm after two months of this, I said to him, Greg, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't have anything else. I'm, I don't have a lot of life experience. I've told you everything I've thought and learned for some reason at that point, I stuck out my hand and I said, Greg, would you shake hands with me? He had been talking about taking his life. I said, would you shake hands and vow to me you will not take your life 
unless you call me first. And he, he hesitated. He agreed to that. So I'm 18. I lost touch with this gentleman. Didn't know what happened to him. So I'm out in Vail, Colorado skiing. I was about 42. It was really cold. Nobody else went to ski. And I said, well, I'm just going to go up one time. So I go outside, get on the chairlift. We're all bundled up. I'm sitting next to this guy. And I guess my voice is a little bit distinctive. And he said, Doug, is that you? This is Greg. Goosebumps, he said this. dude. Goosebumps. He go. Said, yeah, he says, this is Greg. I'm still alive. Wow. <laughs> and we got off the thing. And I, he said, you know, every time I was ready to end it, I thought of that. I've gotten help. I realized I had clinical depression. I'm in a very different space in my life. And I thought, so this was, there might've been a couple more earlier, but this was a big one. And I realized that I didn't have a lot to bring to anything except as comfortable, vulnerable places with people's hard stuff. And that's why I've been really grateful to be a part of that. Awesome. Awesome. Doug. Awesome. How about, um, <laughs> How about five quick questions? You ready? Rapid fire questions. Yeah, done. Say, uh, I was going to ask you five. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't want to answer any questions after what we just heard, buddy. We, we got to brush up on our answers. <laughs> How about your ideal day off of work, Doug? Uh, well, I think, I think work should be an expression of who we are. So it should energize us. So, uh, I kind of feel a lot of time I'm always playing and always working. So it's not a big stress to me, but uh, you know, maybe bike biking, maybe I I'm a collector. I love art. I love doing all kinds of things like that. Kayaking, things like that. But I, I'm not a big guy like, okay, I'm going to go down to the Bahamas and do this. I, uh, I kind of, I'm pretty content wherever I am, you know? Awesome. How about your favorite meal? Uh, favorite meal. I still am crazy about Italian. You know, I I, I I love Italian and I love these family owned Italian places. I love the, I, you know, I love old classic movies, particularly 1938 to 42. And I love in New York, I've got an apartment there and there's a great one on 30, uh, 38th and Park called Rosini's. And I, I love it. I feel like the mafia could come out any minute. And uh, it, it, it's awesome. <laughs> Probably so I, could. I, I love that. I love I love Chianti and Amarone wine. I love I love all kind of wines. But um, yeah, so I, I think I think Italian would be a big one for me. Yeah. And what about you? You have a favorite movie of all time? Uh, the, I think The Letter with Betty Davis is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's about 1939. It's awesome because I like the black and white, the way they use shadows. Yeah, and how they use the the music juxtaposed to the black and white shadow. So mm. that's that's a powerful, really powerful movie. You have a best I, my concert. favorite my favorite musical though is yeah. High Society with Bing Crosby, Louis Armstrong, Frank Sinatra, and somebody else. Anyway, that was like 1954. It's it's amazing. It was a remake of of. Uh, the Philadelphia story, which is made with Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Stewart. Oh, wow. But it's a great, great story. <laughs> yeah. How about you have a favorite concert you ever been to? Uh, you know, my boys are musicians. And so 
you know, we had the best time. We went to Coachella a couple of years ago. I love Neil Young, love Radiohead. Wow. Um, Pink Floyd is killer. Oh my gosh. Uh, so, you know, it was Mick Jagger. They were all there. Paul McCartney. It was crazy. That was the we desert trip. That was the desert trip. I went there with my daughter. Oh, yeah. they did? Oh, my yeah. gosh. The Who, amazing. Paul McCartney, Neil Young. Oh, it was Pink unbelievable. Floyd, I don't think they're doing it anymore. Rolling Stones, it, no. It was so, un- and we were in the mosh pit, which other than standing for about 12 <laughs> hours, it was great. <laughs> all right. No, one more, Doug. You, do you have a favorite charity? I was on the Morehouse board for, I was on the Morehouse college board, which is African males in Atlanta. Martin Luther King went there for, I was on that for 14 years. I was blown away how it changed my life to be a minority. And again, putting my, I always try to put myself in positions where I'm a a minority so I can learn whether that's with Muslims or any, any group that where I just need to, figure out what this will do to me. It was great being on the board, being one of the few white dudes there. And that was great. So I, I think what they're doing with young men is extraordinary. It's, it's incredible. Do they have a foundation like Morehouse college? Uh, found, is there a foundation? Yeah, they, uh, have, they have a, I mean, by comparison to a lot of the Eastern schools, it's not huge, but they do have, they do have. Meaning uh, can you donate into, can our, can our listeners contribute to it? Is there? A, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. They have an endowment, no question. It's Perfect. really, really good. Perfect. Well, Doug, Doug, we are honored. <laughs> and um, I'm really grateful to have had you on the podcast. And I know our audience is going to really take a lot out of this. So I want to thank you personally for being on. And I'm very appreciative. Uh, thank you, John. I- I love what you guys are doing. I mean, you're doing something really important, uh, probing this side of life because either people aren't comfortable with it or don't know how to do it, and you guys are both. Now, make sure you tell Cedric everything I learned came from him. Amen. <laughs> I will. Particularly when Amen. we had the second bottle of wine in Italy. <laughs> so that's a, that's, a, that's a tip of the hat to our friends at MongoDB and Cedric who actually uh, – uh, turned us on to not only you, but your book. And again, the book is called uh, Rethinking Success, Eight Essential Practices for Finding Meaning in Work and Life. Uh, we're honored to have spoken with you, Doug Holliday. You are amazing. Uh, thank you for taking the time. You didn't know us. and You didn't even know there was a connection to our friends at MongoDB. No, and you were gracious. No, it's yeah, great. Dude. Another You're time gracious. I'll tell you about Dev. What I asked ask Dev to read you the poem I made him write. Okay. I will. Awesome. <laughs> Doug, we're so grateful that you were with Thank us. Thank you guys. I Thank hope you for I'd, being I'd here. love to get with you guys at some point. So let's figure out how to do that sometime. Well, you come yeah. to Thanksgiving and then Johnny's coming too. Yeah, I want right. more stories. <laughs> I can hey, only stay th- a month. I wish I could stay longer. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, all of you that are listening and continue to listen to Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.